0: Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, today we're going to be talking about barbed wire, which uh, which for me, it's, it's interesting to just think about how varied... Our thoughts can be just sort of basic word association with barbed wire because when when I just instantly think of the word without a lot of uh, prepping, you know, I th- of course I think of barbed wire barriers. Often, uh, I, in particular, I think about uh, barbed wire that is uh, like in the woods, uh, you know, wrapped around uh, old trees, and the it kind of grow. The tree has grown around the barbed wire in this kind of grotesque way, but also mm-hmm. the the tree is kind of conquering the barbed wire. Uh, so I think of that. I, I of course, think of uh, metal fences, uh, the tops of metal fences particularly to keep people out of, say, industrial areas. You see that a lot in the urban environment. And then, of course, I think about its use in, say, Hellraiser horror films, you know, um, Event Horizon or, uh, of course, the, the the violent stunts that you see uh, perpetrated sometimes in professional wrestling.
0: I definitely assumed there was a pro wrestling angle that yeah. led you to this topic. Yeah. Uh, well, no, no.
1: I wouldn't say that that led me to the to the topic. I, I'm not sure what exactly. Yeah, I can't remember what what made me think this would be a good one to look into. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, I mean, part of it could be just th- the fact that there is barbed wire everywhere. Mm-hmm. We we tend to not see it even as we see it, and I mean, part of that is just the the nature of say a barbed wire fence or a, or a or a cyclone fencing that's topped with barbed wire is that of course you can see through it. You can see what's on the other side. To a certain extent, it is it is almost ev- invisible. Uh, But yet, um, it is there and it is, uh, you know, if you've stopped to really think about it, it's it's quite an oppressive presence to have in the world around you. It's peak hostile architecture. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, just to to go a little deeper um, in in terms of associating— barbed wire with what it's been used for I mean we we have to realize that it's been used to divide up the natural world and enforce artificial barriers to both wildlife and humans it's been used to enforce contested borders, it was used to create the physical barriers of Nazi prisoner of war camps and most infamously of all the the fences of concentration and death camps during the Holocaust, Uh, it's used to enclose human prisoners and in all of its uses against humans and with human populations. I mean, it carries with it
0: the threat of ripped and torn flesh. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just prevent you from crossing. It threatens you. I mean, it says not just like I'm going to make it hard for you to get past this point, but it says you will get injured if you try to get past this point. It will be difficult and or unpleasant.
1: Uh, So you'd better stay on your side of the fence, your side of the barbed wire. Now, all that is kind of dark and grotesque and oppressive and so forth. Um, But the entire episode is not necessarily going to be... As grim, uh, barbed wire has a pretty fascinating history uh, in the United States and in Europe, and we'll get into that uh, even as we discuss its, its uses and, and also some of the, the, the times and places where people tried to make it a little more, uh, a little tamer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally, barbed wire is still going to be barbed wire uh, no matter how you
0: twist it. So as usual, uh, let's first talk about what came before barbed wire. Okay, Uh, I figured this is a good place to call out one of the main sources that we're going to be referring to in this episode, which was a good chapter on the history of barbed wire in a book called The Devil's Rope, A Cultural History of Barbed Wire uh, by Alan Krell, who is an associate professor at the School of Art History and Art Education at the University of New South Wales. And so a lot of this book is actually more in the kind of art history realm. It's talking mm-hmm. about symbolism and stuff. But, uh, but oh, he yeah, also, He works Jesus uh, of Nazareth into the, the first chapter. Well, it's interesting. When you look at uh, like the early days of barbed wire, what was the the closest precedent you might find in the imagery around you for this twisted, thorny uh, strand of material? It was probably going to be like the crown of thorns that you would see on Jesus' head in mm-hmm. medieval artwork. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it really is a natural um,
1: uh, transformation to go from uh, f- from a crown of thorns to potentially, you know, a crown of barbed wire. Uh, which, as uh, uh, the author points out, like you see this kind of imagery thrown around even in the early literature about barbed wire. So, uh, for the most part, we're talking about. Inventions and innovations of the 19th century here. Prior to the 19th century, humans obviously had a robust collection of barrier technologies up their sleeves. Wall and fence technologies extend back to to ancient times. And we mentioned a lot of this in our previous invention episode on walls. Among the earliest known defensive walls are the ancient uh, walls of uh, Mesopotamia, specifically those constructed in the 21st century BCE by the by the Sumerian rulers uh,
0: Shulgi and Shusin. Uh, and of course, this would refer to the earliest, like territorial border wall. We can find evidence of. Now, like, if you're just talking about defensive walls for, like, castles or towns or buildings, that's much, much older. That's going to go back many centuries. Yeah, and as for fencing uh, itself,
1: and it is in the construction of fences as opposed to full-on walls, uh, the the ancient history here is also murky and impossible to nail down. I was looking at Old Fences in Archaeology by Arnie uh, Inarison presented at the 84th Annual Meeting um, of the Society for American archaeology, and the author points out that fences are just a prominent feature of most cultural landscapes and that they frequently play into land division and on farm grazing management. Mm-hmm. So, you know it, it stands to reason that we can we can roughly, I guess think of fencing as a product of the agricultural revolution. But on the o- other hand, nomadic herdsmen seemingly made use of animal pins and essentially fences as well in their temporary settlements. So it really goes back far in human history. There is no you know, no individual person or culture we can point to and say, hey, they came up with fencing.
0: Yeah, and I think when you go back farther into history, most fencing. Is going to be for the control of animals rather than for the control of humans
1: yeah you 're talking about just mild barriers to make managing your your various domesticated animals a little easier so uh, let 's fast forward a bit uh, all the way to nineteenth century c e America and Europe. Uh, But specifically America because this is where we encounter the the European settlers uh, dream of manifest destiny. The idea that here is the American frontier spread before us and it it is ours for the taking by divine right. And part of this, uh, this whole vision, of course, is the idea that you just have these these vast empty stretches of land, right? Uh, of course, in reality, these lands were far from unoccupied. Uh, there were, of course, animals living there. As with any, uh, you know, any of the continents, you have large uh, uh, megafauna that, uh, that required large uh, areas to roam around in. But then you also had native peoples uh, that had lived here f- for at least uh, 15,000 years. But in spite of all that, uh, you know, it was decided that uh, everybody was going to get a chance to have a piece of this unclaimed frontier. So uh, as uh, Eleanor Cummins uh, outlined in A Brief History of Barbed Wire for Popular Science, Abraham Lincoln's Homestead Act of 1862 opened it up for any American to claim uh, 160 acres of public land per citizen. All you had to do was go out there, claim it, and of course, what are you going to do? Maybe throw a fence around it. And so the land was divided, the land was worked and transformed and if you're looking to keep animals on your property uh, and/ or keep other animals off of it, it, it does pay to build some fences but While the American frontier wasn't all empty plains and you know barren uh, uh, you know the great American desert and so forth, there were still plenty of areas where there was a lack of trees and wood and, and therefore it made traditional fences a difficult proposition and it also took you know, more it took longer than was comfortable in many cases to grow, say, hedgerows to serve as natural barriers, mm-hmm. and so settlers began to experiment with the use of wire for fencing. And this makes sense, right? You use less wood uh, and or depend on fewer post trees this way. Plus, despite the weight,
0: metal wire travels rather well. Yeah, wire is a pretty natural solution here. Wire fencing is less likely to be harmed by the weather. It doesn't get blown down by high winds because it doesn't have a flat side to catch the gales. It doesn't get weighed down by snow in the winter. It doesn't catch fire if it gets struck by lightning. Uh, Wire fencing is kind of a perfect solution for the plains. it, it, it. You know, it doesn't last forever, but it, it certainly
1: stands the test of time. I mean, I feel like a lot of my childhood involved encountering uh, old wire fences or barbed wire fences that no longer have any purpose. They're just there in the woods or, mm-hmm. you know, and they're just – they have survived while everything else is just a ghost of uh, of whatever settlement it was a part of.
0: It was uh, one of my favorite kinds of things to discover as a good mm-hmm. kid. You know, I'd roam through the woods and you'd find like a half-buried old barbed wire fence.
1: Yeah, it's like
0: that. Maybe a sunken
1: grave, and of course, you know, like a a, a line of um, of buttercups that still come
0: up, uh, marking uh, some walkway to a, a lost house of some sort. But there is a downside to wire fences, which is that they're not super strong, uh, especially if you know they might be strong for a human to try to get through. Uh, but imagine you are a bull yes. uh, or a bison. Yeah, large uh, animals like
1: this, a cow, a bison, uh, a horse, they, they can simply tear into it, make a mess of it, maybe get tangled up in it. But in the fence itself would be reduced to shambles and would no longer serve its purpose. And, uh, and of course, if you were at all concerned about humans, uh, you know, a, a wire fence like this is not going to really be, um, you know, uh, uh, any kind of an obstacle
0: for humans either. Mm-hmm. So they quickly realized what was lacking here, spikes. Right, passive weapons, just, uh, just some static pokers to sit there and hurt you if you, if you press too hard. So an American farmer and businessman named Joseph Glidden is often given credit for the invention of barbed wire. And he does play a very important role in the history of barbed wire. But it looks like there were a number of inventions of similar types of fencing material before Glidden swooped in. So we really need to take a pretty large step back before we get to Glidden. So we we will get to him in a bit. Uh, one of the first things I thought we should mention since we're still sort of in the what came before phase is the idea of live fencing or live fence, uh, specifically a species of plant known as Maclura palmifera, commonly known as the Osage orange or the hedge apple tree. You ever seen a hedge apple? Oh Yeah, yeah. They're fun to kick down the road. Yeah. I never tried to eat one. I wonder what they taste like. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I never tried either. I bet they're nasty. This was a thorny hedge plant that could be and was used as a kind of natural barbed wire. Uh, to form boundaries and barriers, but it had many problems. You could try to line your fields with uh, Osage Orange, but it was difficult to maintain. It required a lot of trimming, like it can you know, sh- shoot out big branches all over the place. And it, uh, in, in Krell's words, quote, harbored noxious weeds. Hmm. So the question is, can you recreate some of the desirable qualities of this thorn hedge through industrial means or synthetic means. And despite the historical association between barbed wire and the American ranch land frontier, it seems that a number of French inventors preceded the Americans. Uh, There were at least two French patents on barbed wire that came before any patents in America and then another one that came before most patents in America. So let's let's look at France for a second.
1: Right. Now, now I will point out, though, that that Krell doesn't seem to think that there's Necessarily any connection between the French and the American inventions they seem right. to have come up come up with these independently, so I imagine it's one of those things you can you can ultimately explain just in terms of uh, you know, the material science reaching a point where people could uh, could uh, innovate with it or or the demand yeah or the, there'd be a situation where this suddenly appears useful right and what's fascinating here is that the Way that it 's useful varies pretty
0: greatly uh, from Europe to the americas that's right, uh, so in the year eighteen sixty, there was a Frenchman named Leon Eugene Grassin badelon who acquired a patent for quote, grating of wirework for fences and other purposes and i 've got an illustration for you to look at here, Robert. Uh, but this consisted of quote a system of twisted iron employing a flat thin wire known commercially as ribbon iron that could be applied to everything that ought to be enclosed or fenced. Uh, <laughs> and this uh, Krell says this would include railing for parks, railroads, meadows, gardens, pavilions, and even trees. <laughs> like God, imagine that world. You know, just a barbed wire fence for every tree. Uh, Yeah,
1: like uh, if it's not clear already, uh, the the focus here is not so much on wandering cattle,
0: but on people. Yes, Uh, and Krell says that most historians have kind of ignored uh, grassin Badalon, but his patent was the first to describe the common features of twisted wire with sharp projections. Uh, grassin Badalon called these projections bristling points. And Krell is careful to point out that uh, GB here didn't describe the material as something that you would make fences out of, but rather as something that would be mounted on top of a normal fence to make it harder to climb over. Which is exactly how we see barbed wire used and, of course, its cousin
1: razor wire uh, used today. Something you can put at the very top of a non-barbed fence, like you know cyclone fencing, etc., yeah. uh, to, to make it difficult to climb over.
0: Right. So you want to put fencing around all the trees in your city or something. You put this on top of the fence around all the trees. <laughs> Beautiful. But after this, there were more Frenchmen to follow with ideas for barbed wire. There was another guy named Louis Francois Janin who was awarded a patent in April 1865. So five years later, uh, was awarded a patent for barbed wire of a kind of different design. Here, the fence would consist of double twisted wire with diamond-shaped barbs made out of flat pieces of sheet metal. So this isn't uh, this isn't going to be little like pokers sticking out like thorns. This is going to be more like sharp, flat pieces of metal embedded in the wire as it goes along. Sort of little diamond-shaped blades.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the really interesting things to come out of researching this episode was just how many different types of barbed wire uh, have been devised. Hundreds. Over the years. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. And we'll get more into some of the variety as we go here.
0: I mean, I think there were hundreds just between like 1867 and 1874 or Yeah. So. Uh, So a later patent was filed by a brick manufacturer from Brittany, and uh, uh, not to be confusing if you don't know, Brittany is in Western France. It's not in Britain. Uh, Brittany in Western France, and this guy was named uh, Gilbert Gavillard. This was granted in August 1867, and it was for Gavillard's Brevet d'Invention, which describes a fence composed of... Ronce says oh my no, my french is failing me here Ronce's artificiel uh, meaning artificial thorns It would be things that would be uh quote caught between three strands of intertwined wire uh, this uh, brings to mind a
1: description that uh, that Krell shares. He's, he he dis- he discusses uh, the powerful Washburn and Mowen Manufacturing Company out of uh, Massachusetts, which was a, a big, like a major producer mm-hmm. of barbed wire, and of course a major marketer of barbed wire. They put put out some some gloriously over the top descriptions. Of, uh, of barbed wire, uh, the perfect fence. Mm-hmm. And one of the quotes from The Perfect Fence is, quote, the steel barb is nothing more than a thorn, the spur the animal instantly retreats from and thereafter carefully avoids.
0: Yeah, it is compared to a thorn again and again. Emphasis on the natural uh – I was about to say the natural nature, the the naturalness of the thorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Kelly of New York, who received a patent for a barbed wire design on February eleventh, eighteen sixty eight, writes of his invention quote. My invention relates to imparting defenses of wire, a character approximating to that of a thorn hedge. I prefer to designate the fence so produced as a thorny fence. And, you know, you read these arguments and what could be more natural? You're
1: not making something grossly artificial um, and industrial. No, you're you're taking something that the world does naturally, that vegetation does naturally Uh and just uh, applying it
0: uh, a, a little more towards your specific aim. Well, yeah. I wonder if uh, Gracin Badalon was anticipating somebody like me who's horrified by the idea of a barbed wire fence around every tree because when he's talking about his proposal for tree guards, he writes that they, quote – Maybe be of double ribbon wire, which allows the addition of small wire points. And when these ribbons are twisted together, the wire points bristle in every direction and form spikes imitating thorn branches. <laughs> He's just saying it's like another part of the tree. It's just like a plant. Yeah. You could Im- well imagine him today
1: saying, naturally, trees grow upward and, uh, and reach towards the heavens. Uh, why not also help transmit uh, wireless signals for our telephones?
0: <laughs> what could be more natural? Uh-huh. But it's funny. I mean – and we're not even really brushing the surface of all the different marketing materials and patents and uh, and advertisements and everything that described barbed wire as a thorn. Right. They were obsessed with this idea that it's just like a thorn bush. It's just like a briar. And I wonder if – and I wonder where a lot of these comparisons are coming from. I think some of it – Must be coming from like uh, trying to make it seem more humane, more natural, less like some kind of gross metal claw that's invading your environment. Right. And then uh, some of the the
1: literature too is really just pressing – Just how um, cultured it is, how essential it is to have fencing. Mm -hmm. That fencing is the thing that separates us from the savages, right? uh, Which you know, as um, as Krell points out, is just you know steeped in the language of uh, of of of, um, you know European colonists.
0: Yes, and Krell also shows these advertisements from the time that. That sort of envision barbed wire as the demarcation line of a kind of controlled Arcadia, where mm-hmm. he where he would depict people walking along lanes where they would be surrounded by beautiful plants, and then also just like menageries of animals all mixed together, like elephants and and camels and horses and dogs and stuff all in the same pens, but they're all separated from these lanes by this elegant looking barbed wire, yeah, and, and so it's like I, I don't. Know no, oh, it's it 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 enforces this theme of like man versus beast and humankind versus nature, and we can tame it and put it in the box and control it with these artificial, with these industrial thorns, these thorns of human ingenuity.
1: Yeah, there's one point where Krell is dealing with this uh, this illustration by one of the uh, the barbed wire. Um, uh, masters uh, there of a of a cow trying to eat an apple, mm-hmm. but is prevented from reaching that apple in this uh, you know otherwise uh, you know a pristine garden environment by barbed wire fencing, uh-huh. which he compares then uh, to the Garden of Eden and the and the, you know the the, the tree of uh, knowledge of uh, good and evil and so forth, uh, which uh, which is maybe a bit of a stretch, but uh, but still I I, li- I like the argument. Well, if we just had one of those tree
0: guards in the garden, there wouldn't have been a fall right yeah <laughs> the fence is order and yeah. uh, and and the opposite of order is chaos right uh, so maybe we should take a quick break and then when we come back we can explore the year that the that the dam broke on the barbed wire uh, flood.
1: All right, we're back. So, uh, as we mentioned earlier, you had the the Homestead Act of eighteen sixty two that really opened up the the American uh, the Great American Desert, and uh, it's in the wake of this that we begin to to
0: see this this real uh, this real rush, right? Right. Uh, it seems that something happened around the year eighteen sixty seven because that's the year that a ton of barbed wire patents began popping up in the United States. We mentioned that the first patent was in France in eighteen sixty. There was another one in eighteen sixty five. And then in 1867, the American floodgates open. There were so many barbed wire patents and designs that, that popped up between around 1867 and running into the mid-1870s. And again, we, we mentioned earlier some of the demands that might have put pressure on this invention. You've got the continued colonization of the Western prairie lands, the desire for farmers to keep animals in and or keep animals out of their fields in a place where lumber was scarce and the weather could easily damage a solid wooden fence anyway, wire fencing was kind of this perfect solution and then the barbs meanwhile were there to discourage animals from knocking down the wire fencing. So, who were some of these early American inventors of the industrial thorn? There are honestly too many to name here, but just to mention a few, there was a guy named Alfonso Dab of Elizabethport, New Jersey. And he got a patent in April 1867 for an improvement in pickets for fences and walls. And this would be like you've got a wrought iron mounting strip and you could put this on top of an existing fence uh, or an existing wall. And this would be to, in, in Dab's words, quote, stop juveniles or others from climbing them. <laughs> yeah. So these are these are uh,
1: uh, anti-human spikes that yes. you would put on top of a fence, and uh, you, you attached a, a picture of this f- uh, for our notes here. And really, they, they look more like spearheads or bayonets or something to that effect. Yes, uh, less like like anything we would identify as barbed wire.
0: Yeah, these are less for agriculture. These are something that would go on top of an existing fence, and they would poke your butt if you tried to climb <laughs> over. Uh, and then in the same year, but a little uh, a few months later, in June 1867, a Lucian B. Smith of Kent, Ohio, came up with a, uh, a barbed wire invention, which Smith describes thusly, quote, "...posts of cast iron, between which two or more stout wires are strung tightly, which wires are provided with spools a few feet apart and protected with short projecting points." Um, and this is so, quote, a fence of this kind can be constructed very cheaply and will turn animals readily as they can see it better than the ordinary wire fence, which has nothing attached to the wires to attract attention and the animals will not counter the spurs or the spools. So this is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Smith is saying not only will these spurs poke the animals if they press against the fence and, and – deter them there, it'll also make the fence more visible to the animals so that they won't need to poke up against it, brush against it by accident. They'll be able to see it more easily than they would see just plain smooth wire. And another early American patent for something counting as a barbed wire fence belonged to an inventor named William D. Hunt of New York, and this was awarded in July 1867. The design here is a little bit different from the barbed wire we're familiar with. Uh, It was conceived as a farming and ranching innovation and uh, from Hunt's patent, uh, he, he describes it as, quote, The spurs fit the wire loosely so as to revolve easily upon it. By providing the wire with these sharp spur wheels, animals are deterred from pushing against the fence or attempting to break over it. And so this would not be twisted wire forming little artificial thorns, but rather it would be a smooth wire along which are strung like beads, these little kind of like saw blade looking things that can rotate freely around the wire. And then they would be held basically in place by little studs on the wire. Yeah, kind of like little ninja throwing stars, right? Yes. Uh, And, uh, you know,
1: this one also, this one looks kind of neat, actually, the illustration. And I can imagine it being kind of, um, you know, shiny and decorative mm-hmm. uh, if it was deployed uh, in a way that would you know, perhaps be pleasing to the eyes but also, coming back to that previous point, perhaps highly visible to animals.
0: Yeah, and I think this might actually be a slightly more humane version of barbed wire. I'm, I'm not sure because I haven't tried it myself, but It would still provide a painful resistance if, say, cows tried to press up against it. But because the sharp spur rotates freely around the wire, it seems a lot less likely than the barbed wire we're used to to catch and tear skin. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like it's not a hook going into you. It's just a a sharp little thing. And and the fact that it rotates means it, you know, it might hurt to press against it, but it's not going to stay in you. Now, there's a great thing that's uh, quoted in Krell's book, which is Hunt describing his inspiration for the invention, which was uh, basically he had had trouble with a very stubborn mule. And he said, quote, I made up my mind that one young mule couldn't beat me, so one day the idea suggested itself to me. Somehow, I don't know as I can tell how, that a wire fence might be burred, as I called it then, barbed, as it has been changed to since, and I thought it would make a good thing. The reason why I thought so was that this mule would press against a thing and stand so obstinate it would hang against the board of a fence, and I thought if I had something sharp, he wouldn't crowd it so hard. (laughs) Uh, So... Bird fencing, colon, a good thing. Well, at least a hunt it was, you know, when you got a stubborn mule. But there are many problems with the early designs for barbed wire fencing. A lot of these designs beginning in 1867 might have been effective if they were used but there were problems with the production. The barbs had to be created and placed along the wire by hand. And this was extremely laborious, potentially dangerous or painful for the worker. It would have made production of the wire slow and expensive. Yeah,
1: because you're basically having to make a necklace every time you string up uh, some, some wire. Yeah. Uh, if you're having to you know beat it with these little shurikens and so
0: forth. Right. So the next major revolution in barbed wire, I think, was less about how effective the specific wire design was at controlling animals and more at uh, more about how the design could be mass produced. And this is where Joseph Glidden comes in. This is where everything seems to change. In the year 1874, Joseph Glidden patented the first design for barbed wire that would ever become a huge commercial success. According to Krell, in 1874, just about ten thousand pounds of barbed wire were produced and sold. Six years later, in eighteen eighty, that figure was more than eighty million pounds. Uh, there's a there's a great line from uh, Glidden's
1: marketing. Uh, he he claimed that this his wire was quote lighter than air,
0: stronger than whiskey, cheaper than dust. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- that taps into another thing that I think is common in barbed wire marketing, which is. I think pretty straightforward appeals to kind of uh, masculinity marketing. Mm-hmm. There's like very gendered marketing with barbed wire. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, it was it was pretty obvious that it was going
1: to be um, a male audience that was going to be buying this barbed wire for, mm. for a variety of reasons. Uh, but yeah, there's this whole, again, the man versus nature, uh, a taming of the wilderness um, for the most part. But we will get into a major
0: divide on that uh, as we move forward. Sure. So what was Glidden's mass production method? Well, it involved taking two strands of wire and twisting them around each other while barbs were automatically strung along one one of the two wires and then held in place by the wrapping of the second wire. It's a pretty ingenious method.
1: Yeah, it's it's basically an example of what we, we come to see as the standard in barbed wire, and that is the the sense of barbed wire as a kind of knot yeah.
0: that is formed, as opposed to something that is manufactured by the beating of spikes and so forth. Exactly, yeah. Uh, now, there was a huge amount of legal battling over barbed wire patents, but uh, Glidden managed to come out ahead in all of this with his mass production method. His barbed wire knot was also pretty straightforward. Uh, by the way,
1: uh, about the, the legal battle, uh, there is a you know, whole history here with this sort of battle royale of the, oh. all these various American individuals. We'll get into
0: that in a minute. Yeah.
1: Uh, I was actually – I was running across articles in the New York Times from the day mm-hmm. uh, where they were they had updates uh, to the legal battle.
0: Yeah, it was a crazy drama and we'll even get to some poetry about that <laughs> drama in a minute. Uh, now, there's another interesting fact here which is that uh, th- there are some versions of the story that – point out, uh, uh, Joseph Glidden's wife, Lucinda Warren Glidden's role in this. Apparently, Lucinda helped Joseph figure out the process that would set his barbed wire apart. Uh, so first, Glidden used his wife's hairpins to twist sharp points that he tried to attach to a piece of straight wire, but like many other barbed wire inventors before him, he came across a problem which was that the hairpin barbs kept slipping down the length of the wire. They couldn't be held in place. So to describe what happened next, uh, I'm going to quote from Krell, quote, Turning next to a coffee mill retrieved from their kitchen, Glidden converted it in such a way that by cranking it he could produce a uniform barb. The problem of the sliding barbs was finally resolved when he hit upon the idea that a second wire might secure them if it were twisted around the first. To this end, he converted an old grindstone into a rudimentary twisting device and with the help of Lucinda, who turned the grindstone while he held the wire, proceeded to make the first 66 feet of barbed wire in their backyard. Also,
1: thank you, husband, for turning every uh, device in our house into a barbed wire uh, (laughs) uh, uh, construction method.
0: Yeah, from then on, the coffee tastes like barbed wire. Yeah.
1: Now another uh, interesting individual in all of this was John Warren Betamillion Gates, oh, uh, boy. so named because it said that he'd take bets on whether cows could break through his wire, uh-huh. and apparently there was some this criticism that he was maybe using really lazy cows. Or you know, <laughs> I was re- reading some sort of uh, you know back and forth on this, but either way, he became quite rich off the product. Though uh, he he engaged apparently at times in the sale of quote moonshine wire. Uh, which, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, would have been like kind of like bootleg design wires, yeah. like, uh, barbed wire recipes that he wasn't actually, uh, you know, legally supposed to be selling.
0: The amount of anguish over bootleg or like scalped. Barbed wire is is one of the most shocking things I discovered in this. Like, yeah. there there was great passion about the intellectual property disputes of barbed wire in the 1870s and 80s, and and this is because Glidden was not the only person to invent uh, to invent a barbed wire in the 1870s uh, or or to invent an effective mass production system for barbed wire. There was another inventor named Jacob Haish who came up with a similar uh, process to Glidden's in the same year, but Glidden won the. Legal battle over precedence. In fact, there were at least three inventors. So you had Glidden, you had Jacob Haesch, and then there was a hardware dealer named Isaac L. Elwood, who were all involved in a long running IP dispute after they each tried to file patents for barbed wire. After, the three of them all visited the Decab, Illinois County Fair of 1873, where the three of them all saw a display by a guy named Henry Rose, which included a long strip of wood that had barbs attached to it, which could be used to keep an animal from pressing against a fence. Mm. And so all three of them looked at this idea of roses, so like a long wooden dowel with barbs on it, all three of them independently had the idea that it would make more sense to do the same thing but put the barbs on a length of wire instead of a wooden rod. And then all three set to work trying to acquire a patent and Glidden just happened to turn out the big winner of this long and acrimonious dispute. But I think it's funny that like they're all fighting they're fighting each other and like they all basically got the idea from this other guy, yeah. uh, but they just all had the insight that wire would work better than a, than a wooden rod. But at some point, the defeated inventor Jacob Heche, who, you know, who lost this uh, intellectual property battle to Joseph Glidden, he wrote a poem called Be As Happy As You Can that is quoted in Krell's book. This is so good. This life is not all sunshine, as barb fence scalpers have found. The crosses they bear are heavy, and under them lies no crown. And while they're seeking the roses, the thorns full oft they scan. Yet let them, though they're wounded, be as happy as they can. (laughs) It's like the Bobby Fuller Four's letter dance of Barbed Wire. (laughs) And in this, we do have the, 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 the crown of Christ imagery as well. Absolutely. But what comes out of this is that Glidden's version of barbed wire is probably correctly understood to be the progenitor of most existing types of barbed wire today. Yeah. In summary, uh, via Krell, uh, it is
1: accurate to say that barbed wire, quote, was born in France, independently conceived in the eastern states of America, New Jersey, Ohio and New York, and grew up on the prairies and plains where, for different reasons, farmers especially and later ranchers turned increasingly to fencing. All right, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we will continue to discuss barbed wire, and we'll even get into uh, uh, one or two examples of barbed wire used in a way that we might uh, well describe as, uh, I don't know. Not evil. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I think that would be accurate. (laughs) All right, we're back. So there are, again, many different varieties of barbed wire. And, and one book that is, that is often mentioned in, uh, in writings about the history of barbed wire is a book that was published in 1977 titled The Bobbed Wire Bible. That's Bobbed <laughs> B-O-B-B-E-D, by Jack Glover. Published in 77, and I think earlier as well. But I think maybe the edition I was looking at was from 77. And it contains illustrations of 734 different steel barbed wire knots, including things like scut's wooden block and uh, the shin round line lock barb. Uh, And uh, I – if you If you can find a copy of this or just find some images of pages uh, uh from this book, it's pretty fascinating because they're they're neat little illustrations, and it just really drives home the diversity uh, that went into envisioning all the ways that you could create a barb out of uh out of uh, metal wiring
0: It's amazing how much human imagination went into lengths of wire that can hurt you,
1: yeah. Now, a a particularly nasty variation uh, on all this is uh, we mentioned razor wire uh, briefly earlier uh, or concertina wire, which is – either the same or very similar depending on how specific you get in your barbed wire terminology.
0: I thought concertina wire had to do with like how it was coiled. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but sometimes the words are – sometimes people say constantine wire, which is just a perversion of the the term. Oh, okay. Uh, but, uh, but in these, we're really getting into anti-human barbed wire varieties that yeah. you usually see used uh, in military, penal, or border settings. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the development and widespread use of this sort of wire really goes back to the First and Second World Wars where they were used in trench warfare environments and other fortifications.
0: Yeah, and, and this does seem to be a change over time that, like, early on... Most of the messaging about barbed wire is, as Krell points out, this culture versus nature thing. It's humankind versus the untamed animal world. And you're putting these barriers in place to keep the animals in or keep the animals out. Especially over the course of the 20th century, barbed wire, is, it takes a much darker turn. And we see it more and more deployed specifically for uses on humans to keep the humans in or to keep the humans out. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. Now one uh, we mentioned earlier about like masculinity and the marketing and acceptance of barbed wire. Uh, one huge fact of the American West was that while farmers were very much in favor of barbed wire, cattlemen were not. Because what does it do when you start throwing up miles and miles of barbed wire fencing? Well, it disrupts the open grazing lands uh, th- and uh, it prevents cattle and horses uh, from uh, from moving around freely, or you know, from cow- prevents cowboys from moving a herd across uh, uh, great distances. And uh, on top of that, cattle and horses could get pretty messed up in barbed wire. I mean, that's that's one thing that is often kind of uh, skimmed over uh, in uh, in the marketing material uh, is that. Is that yeah? This stuff can really cut up an animal and or a human and uh, and and put them in some pretty you know
0: put them in dire shape. Well, I think that specifically a lot of the early advertising was trying to be misleading. That's why it kept emphasizing the thorn thing. Yeah. It was it, I think it was trying to suggest your animals will not get hurt. You know right. it, they they will just uh, you know it will just deter them. Yeah,
1: it's just we're just strategically deploying something that they would otherwise encounter naturally. Yeah, but that's not really quite the case. Um, so, Cattlemen did not really take kindly to barbed wire for a very long time. Uh, it was uh, also apparently decried by Texans as not only cruel and alien to the culture of the open range, but also, uh, as, um, as Krell points out, quote, a Yankee scheme to benefit the industrial north. Okay, Which, I don't know. I mean, you can um, – you can certainly understand that point of view, right? Because look at some of the places it's coming from. So some of the birthplaces of the barbed wire industry. Mm-hmm. You could easily see it. it's like, well, this is some stuff that's made up north, and they're bringing it down here, and they're just selling it to all these farmers, and it's just cutting up our land. And so uh, this is a, this is like a whole part of um, of uh, you know sort of Wild West history. I guess I didn't, wasn't that familiar with, but cattlemen would would sometimes get fed up with it, and they'd go and they'd. They just cut down like miles of barbed wire fencing, sometimes as part of masked gangs working at night. And these masked gangs sometimes even had cool gang titles. Um, and then the, at first it was illegal fencing, but then they would also use uh, these vigilante powers against legal fencing as well. Mm-hmm. And in terms of just sort of the humane or inhumane aspect of barbed wire, you had varieties of more humane barbed wire designs that were rolled out. The idea being that it would be easier for cattle to, uh, to, to be freed from them. Uh, some, uh, one variety I was looking at in particular had uh, blocks of wood that were inset in the wire as well. But this ended up not really taking off, and I imagine a big part of it is that it's just more manufacturing required, Mm -hmm. uh, either on the industrial end or on the farmer's end, and therefore it just wasn't, uh, wasn't picked up easier to stick with the crueler product in this case. Also, Krell points out that the use of barbed wire against humans and animals led to a micro-industry of barbed wire uh, liniments and antiseptics, such as silver pine healing oil or Dr. <laughs> Cox uh, liniments and antiseptic, among others, a basically like you know, kind of snake oil-esque
0: oil esque Ointments—they may have done some good. Uh, Put the healing power of Dr. Cox's on your barbed wire. Yeah, but your the, animals will be healthy as ever. Exactly, but
1: I mean, it really shows you like there was there were enough people and animals getting cut up by this stuff that there was a like a side industry of selling specialized ointments
0: to deal with all of those cuts to humans and livestock. Yeah, totally. And as long as we're talking about the cultural impact, I mean, obviously. Uh, barbed wire, I think, came to be seen as one of the most iconic technologies symbolizing the brutal conquest of of the North American continent from uh, from the native peoples who lived there. Yeah, yeah
1: this is where apparently the name uh, the devil's rope comes from. That yeah. was one of the um, uh, the names for it uh, that was used by the native peoples of North America. Some of the plains tribes called yeah. it devil's rope. Yeah, yeah. And, and speaking too of the um, of the pre colonial. Um, Uh, you know, west, Uh, it was not only humans and domestic herds that were impacted, but also the American bison, which, of course, more famously suffered from overhunting, uh, hunted to the, you know, the brink of extinction, but also this ever-expanding use of barbed wire also
0: cut them off from vital grazing and watering areas. Mm -hmm. So while the story of the invention of barbed wire is an interesting one, it's hard not to be left... uh I don't know, when you just think about the impact of this technology left with a, a pretty depressing uh, landscape.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, and it it does literally make a landscape look depressing, uh, at least the more you think about it. It's mm-hmm. like, again, barbed wire is something, especially if you've grown up around it, you can, you can take it for granted, especially if it is not used so much against your, you, you know, if it's used sort of – if it's used against livestock yeah. or against, um, you know, People in an, an outline group that you are not a part of, perhaps you can you can be blind to its impact as well but um, yeah, for, yeah for the most part it's um, it's not an invention that I would really classify in the good category. However, uh, there are a couple of examples of of, of uses for barbed wire, uh, both of which surprised me. Uh, the, The first of which is that while barbed wire couldn't transmit a signal as well as traditional telephone wire, which is you know insulated copper wiring. Uh, you still saw this case in the early 1930s, where rural farmers were some of the early adopters of this new technology of uh, t- you know, telephone lines. Mm-hmm. And for a few years, they would they were actually using barbed wire uh, because they had to build out their own telephone collectives. And uh, without access to uh, easy access to all that insulated copper wire, they had access to the to the barbed wire. They would just string the barbed wire instead. Uh, which is which is interesting. Wonder what this call sounded like. Well, pro- probably pretty rough. Probably <laughs> ju- just just clear enough to get by. Um, and then I mean, this was like just a few years before. Then it was uh, replaced. And, mm-hmm. and also at that point, the farmers were no longer required to string their own wiring. Now, a more surprising use, uh, though, uh, was is uh, uh, multiple cases I came across of uh, in which barbed wire has been used for science. Uh, So you have a great many studies that utilize strands of barbed wire. Usually it's like a single strand to study bear populations. So basically, what you have is a situation where researchers will use single strands of barbed wire to obtain fur samples from wild bear populations for DNA testing. And this also entails baiting them a little bit, which uh, according to Tom uh, Dixon of Montana Outdoors, this would be a bottle that contains, quote, year-old, a year-old fermented mix of cow blood and fish guts, mm. which to a human is pretty disgusting, but to a bear – Wow, nice. Worth checking out. So uh, yeah, th- this is this is fascinating. So the idea, is, of course, is not to to hurt the bear, and really not even necessarily to to like scrape into its uh, skin, but to catch some of its fur. This ample you know fur armor that uh, like a black bear uh, has on its body. Mm-hmm. So the the bear will come to check out the bait, and when it does so, the um, uh, the barbs on the barbed wire will, will catch some of the fur and pull it free and then researchers are able to use that fur uh, and you know, look at the DNA and use it to understand uh, you know, the, basically the shape of wild bear populations. So we can at least we can put that then, another check under the positive <laughs> uses of barbed wire uh, in, in world history a way of uh, caring for bear populations. I like it. Yeah. But that's all I have. Sorry. It's just those two. <laughs> That's uh. This, those are the only examples. Uh, there there well, might be. it's a... also fun to play with,
0: is it? Barbed wire? Uh, kinda. I don't know. When I was a kid, were you like... a backyard wrestler? No. That... <laughs> <laughs> what were you playing with? No, barbed? no, no. Not, not for its. I don't know. It was just like kind of cool to like whip around and stuff. Oh well, I guess. Um, I don't know. It, well, it, it's fun to play with in the same way that like a good stick's fun to play with. Well, you know, I
1: don't. Here's the thing. I do remember like kids. When when I was a kid in Newfoundland, Canada, the other kids, the older kids, the dangerous kids, were into um, two things: uh, Michael Jackson, uh, those red uh, uh, leather jackets, you know, like Michael Jackson what, wore. Really? Yeah, those were okay. very popular. And then everybody was making; uh, they were making like a like a mace. Out of a, a stick of wood that had nails driven through it. Mm-hmm. So um, you know they're just—it was like Lore of the Flies*, I guess. This
0: sounds like an '80s movie.
1: Yeah, it was. It was this was the '80s. Were but, they on rollerblades? No, because the, were the roads were. were were all gravel where I was, I don't know what you would have done with a, a rollerblade there. But I don't remember there being a lot of barbed wire around. If there had been, I'm sure they would have wrapped it around their makeshift uh, uh, melee weapons. Did they answer to Lord Humongous? <laughs> they i I'm sure they knew Lord Humongous. He was, I think he was pretty popular at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I think that would have been the window for me encountering people playing with barbed wire. For the most part, I think I was always like a little wary of it because when I would encounter barbed wire. There was either there was a very good chance that it was either like super rusty, uh, and and therefore kind of icky, or it might be electrified, and therefore I really don't want to touch it. Hmm. Uh, of course, that's, that's another feature we didn't even mention about barbed wires that, uh, if strung properly, then you can put an electric current through it, uh, which adds to its uh, effectiveness. Yeah, and
0: I think in some cases use it like especially in ranching or you know livestock control, whatever places where you would once have barbed wire have been replaced mostly with electric fencing. Yeah,
1: because if you have an electric current going through it, you need not have actual barbs because you have electric barbs. Uh, but I will come back to what I said earlier, is that I, I think that our attitudes toward barbed wire, you know, they're going to really revolve around our own experience and like, the area in which we encountered it. So I'd love to hear from listeners out there like wh- how – how do you interact with barbed wire? Like, what is what comes to mind when you think of barbed wire, and to what extent is it influenced by the way it is used in your rural setting, in your urban setting, uh, is, as it's used in, say, you know, prison environments, or you know, border environments, or uh, used in, 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 in uh, you know, in warfare, fortifications, et cetera? Uh, I'd love to hear from everybody on these on these points. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, including that, that episode that we did on Walls, for example, you can head on over to inventionpod.com. That'll shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. But you can find us absolutely anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. Just uh, rate, review, and subscribe. Those are some acts you can, uh, you can do that really help us out. Also, tell a friend. If you enjoy Invention, tell another human being about the show, and perhaps they'll enjoy it as well. And I'm suddenly remembering we didn't even get into tattoos. How many tattoos of barbed wire are there? (laughs) And then I wonder, are people really appreciating all the varieties of barbed wire? If you're thinking of getting a barbed wire tattoo, stop and go get uh, go get that book that I mentioned earlier with the seven hundred and uh, something different varieties of barbed wire, mm. and just just look around a little bit, do a little shopping, a little window shopping before you decide on uh, a particular brand of barbed wire that is going to be tattooed around your bicep. Get one of
0: the French varieties, <laughs> yeah. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.